Welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name is Mark Smith, and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. This week's exchange is with Jazzy B. Jazzy got his start in family run reggae sound systems, but after getting hooked on soul and funk, he forged his own path to create soul to soul a uniquely British sound system and production outfit that reflected London's diverse tastes like no other. In conversation with Stephen Titmus at RA's London office, Jazzy looks back on a charmed career, reflecting on his sound system origins, the London club scene of the 80s, and his status as a black British icon. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at resonantadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at RA-Exchange. The exchange with Jazzy B is up next. soul started as a sound system people listening to this now might not know what you mean by a sound system so can you just explain what what that I, means in in your <laughs> basically sound system tradition is taken from the um from the caribbean but technically a sound system is almost like well we used to describe it as a mobile radio station because the sound systems back in the earlies were giving you information and messages of, of what was happening in the Caribbean or wherever you were from and so on and so forth, your turf or your ends as we describe it now. But basically a sound system was like a DIY, do-it-yourself sort of, um, yeah, I guess a disco setup. And traditionally sound systems built their amps, built their preamps, built all their speakers and stuff like that. And they all had various ideas of trying to have a more efficient sound, as it were. And we came out loosely based around my brother's sound system from the 70s. My first sound system was called Jarico. And in those days, in the 70s, most kids and West Indian kids were cutting their teeth in terms of, you know, as young people do, you're trying to find your way out there. And what we tended to do was um, absorb and soak up all the old sound systems and take the best bits of what they did and fuse them together with our sound system. So back in the early 80s, I got together with Daddy Harvey and um, we created a sound. Um, we used to be called Jarico first and then we changed the name into Soul to Soul because we had a passion for a lot of different styles of music. And the idea of Soul to Soul was like, 
from our souls to your souls, as it were. Strangely enough, years later, we found out that there was also a Jamaican sound system called Soul to Soul as well. And then we met with a promoter who had put on a massive show in Ghana called Soul to Soul as well. So um, we weren't far off the mark, as it were. And you were almost born into sound system culture with your brothers, right? You've got a lot of siblings, right? There's a lot of siblings, there's loads of us. And in the house, there was at least a minimum of three sound systems, but everybody was a DJ. And weirdly enough, everybody also had their own music collection. So, um, you know, I would feed everything from the country and Western that my parents were listening to, the storytelling type folk music sort of thing, all the way through to Inkerbert, Ample Dink. My sister, my eldest sister was a Cliff Richard fan. You mix that now with the traditional sound system stuff, so the, all the reggae stuff and the dub stuff that was coming out. And for some reason, we were massive fans of Augustus Pablo at the time. So anything Pablo did, anything on Rocker's label, was always a part of um, what we did. So coming up through school, which gave me the opportunity to play my sound, as well as the community centres and... They say, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. Well, it takes a street to raise a sound system, as it were. So, you know, usually with the sound system, it's very noisy. It's, it's slightly unsociable in terms of putting things together. And then when you want to, as we say, bark and shout, um, that means turning your sound system up and playing it loud. Yeah, you've got to have um, neighbours who are quite tolerant. <laughs> <laughs> especially with three or four in one house absolutely but you see back in those days in the 70s what's really interesting is that compared to how houses are now you had really massive high ceilings you had big rooms and stuff like that and the way the houses were put together oddly enough didn't feel like that we were anywhere short of space during that period of time plus in the 70s i guess they were in a transient period, rebuilding, redeveloping, rehousing, and so on and so forth. So there were lots of derelict places to hang out in, not necessarily very safe or whatever, but it's what we knew, and that was part of us growing up. So we would have been going through, you know, running through half burnt down houses or, or big factories and stuff like that. And there's some interesting venues that come into mind. I'm jumping from one thing to another, but just to give you a snapshot of the type of places where we played was anything from a community centre or a church hall, which would resemble like a school hall, which is quite a massive space. During the early days of our community centre days, you, you, you had the community centres, some of them ran in the schools after school time, so it was like an after school club. So you had the use of the drama room, the gymnasium, you know, the canteen, all these places. So they were pretty big spaces, as it were. So we moved in and out of those spaces to traditional, what you call rent parties or, or blues parties you know you pay a little fee to come in and those parties were usually associated with when I was growing up what they call like susa parties where you basically paid a little bit of money to get in and usually that money was put towards the rent and then they cooked food and you had drinks and stuff it was more of a sort of social gathering and for the smaller island people other than the Jamaicans it was a it was a small little kind of like shindig as it were but obviously we would exploit that and try to make it bigger than it, w it was ever supposed to be and from there we moved out to christenings and weddings and obviously birthday parties and stuff like that. Then coming up in school, the drama room was always used. We took advantage of the woodwork classes to build our speakers. We took advantage of the physics classes to, to understand and learn about sounds and stuff like that and so on and so forth. And strangely enough, music and pee went together hand in hand <laughs> so that was also uh, a, another interesting challenge and we talked about earlier on meeting people through the the circuit or the system as it were and we were quite prolific on in north london with our football at holloway boys school so that meant that i was meeting other people from all over the place particularly hackney and places like that 
And often enough, when you met up at the football matches, after the scrap, you're on your way home and then you'd meet somebody who'd be affiliated with somebody else's brother who had a sound system and so on. And, and this is how it sort of went in those days. We didn't have social network and phones and stuff like that. You know, the red telephone box and that was about it. But most of us, somehow, we met up, usually on time, and... Um, Life seemed to be so sweet then. It was endless. The days were endless in terms of our social gatherings and so on and so forth. So through meeting other people from different areas, different districts and so on and so forth, you shared ideas. And for me personally, that was also a massive coup because then I was taking information from one part of London and transferring it to another part. But in my in my way, as it were. So whether that was like listening to a sound like Scrap Iron or King Tubbies or something, and they would have their speakers in a certain way, or they would sound a certain way, you would often take those little bits and put that, interject that into your sound system. But on that note, I must add that North London probably had the more efficient and powerful sound systems. I'm not sure if that the fact that they all had an apprenticeship or what but somehow on this side of of town seemed um, the bigger sound systems or, or or the more quality sound systems far more efficient than the others but um one of the other fun things of growing up in the 70s every street literally every road had a sound system and if you were lucky some of the streets had two or three different sound systems so um it was a lot of fun coming up and in those early days, we're talking mainly reggae sound systems. <clears throat> yeah, by tradition, you're talking reggae sound systems. Although commercially, you know, you had the reggae boys, you had the soul heads, you know, you had this, you had all the different tribes like we have today. But somehow the idea of the mix and blend was very important because anybody who did their apprenticeships in sound systems and then went on to a club, a nightclub, you had to play soul music, no matter where, you know, because you had to mix and blend for the owner of the clubs and stuff like that. And what sound systems tended to do was almost transfer the idea of the mix and blend and be a bit more traditional along one line. And then you had Roots sound systems, you had, you know, Rockers sound systems, you had Lovers Rock, which were more kind of English orientated. But weirdly enough, I remember back in the early, everybody was trying to be Jamaican and they were English. They probably maybe came from Jamaica and never went back or had some sibling or some member of the family that was Jamaican and tried to do that. And what that flipped the script for me because I was like, but we're not in Jamaica, we're in England. And for me, that was my driving force was the fact that I always try to use what was known as Great Britain in those days. Fantastic engineering, great equipment, a really interesting melting pot, actually. And those were in the early days. So I tried to take those traditional things that you wouldn't necessarily put hand in hand and put that in my sound system. And secretly, although I'm going to mention this for the second time, I love soul and jazz. So I'd often follow... You know, I'd go out and if I could get into the club where Robbie Vincent was playing, but I was a massive fan of a gentleman called Steve Walsh. And I took a, a few of his tactics into my style of DJing. And prior to that, you know, I would have followed Paul Anderson from my area, being North London. Um, George Powell would put on all those gigs. And we, you know, from the school days, you know, bunking off to go to Crackers on a Friday afternoon and stuff. Um, yeah, like, I wanted to ask you about Crackers because it's probably a club not many people would know about nowadays. Okay. Um, and it seems like such a fascinating place, you know, all underage. Yeah. It's Friday afternoons, was it? Was, yeah. the, big, was the big one? It, it, you know, the the you, weirdest thing. Can George, you talk about it? Yeah, yeah, George Power must have had the crazy idea, but basically we were actually in school, supposedly, at the time. But yeah, um, Friday afternoons, it felt like everybody went there. It was on Oxford Street. It felt like everybody went to Crackers. I don't know if we bunked off school or if it was an early day on a Friday. I, I can't quite remember, but I remember having awesome times on a, uh And then later, as we got older, we did the... Uh, 
the roller skating stint over at Electric Ballroom, which again was uh, was all part of George Powell's thing. And Paul Anderson played there as well. Royalty in Southgate was also a spot that everybody went to. And then from there, it sort of branched out. So if you was uh, East London, then you would have been, you know, Oh, in those early days, it would have been places like um, Lacey's, Lacey Ladies, and there's also that place that, that was south in it, Catford. There were so many, it's, yeah. uh, there were loads of different clubs, as you mentioned, you know, as things come to mind, uh, it sort of blows up. But all of those things were the, the, the gateway, as it were, to what we experience today. So you would have had, you know, fantastic DJs back in those days um, and they truly you know were the leaders of, of, of whatever was going on so we were following great DJs at the time the mix and blend between you know listening to Steve Walsh which was a far more sort of whiter obviously a soul scene had this mix and blend it wasn't nothing like the northern soul scene let's not get that twisted because that part I never understood because technically that would have been for more people who lived outside of London who were into this this sort of like R&B style music but it was predominantly white. And um, if there were black people there, they were people who lived out in the sticks who were looking for an identity. But if you went there, there was no tribal identity, I'm telling you, because I went to a couple of those gigs to find out what was this all about. It wasn't tribal at all. In actual fact, being on the peripherals of that scene, it was far more drug orientated to me than it was anything else. Cause I, I didn't really get the music. It, it kind of, and also what was a bit odd for me was the sense of dress, which I would have thought had something to do with living up North. Cause it was quite a Northern, th oh, <laughs> here I'm mentioning that it's Northern, so hello. <laughs> yeah, so I didn't really get that kind of thing. And there wasn't a lot of people of my hue in those venues anyway, but coming back down South, even in the early soul days scenes and the clubs, they used to have a door quota. So often enough, I'd follow this gentleman called Robbie Vincent and, and try and get in these pubs and stuff like that, and they weren't having it. So I was, which I think led me more to to go and listen to Steve Walsh because wherever Stevie played, there were black people, but where the other guys played, it was more, it, it felt like, as I reminisce now, not knowing then, it felt a little bit like elite for for kind of white guys and stuff like that. And and there were it was, it just seemed so wrong that they were playing this sort of black music and no white and no black people were allowed in. But um, I guess that was a combination of what was happening in society at the time, ignorance and the fact that, like most of the black guys say, they're scared of us, you know. So when we used to go, there'd be it wouldn't be just me or H or whatever, there'd be a few, quite a few guys there. And weirdly enough, the more you acted white, the more you'd get into the club. <laughs> and then it, it was just a very odd thing, which we took for granted at the time. And I just really wondered if any of those DJs, I should really pose the question to those guys, were they aware what was going on? Well, they must have been, because the only other place you could go and really see a real swing of blacks and whites were clubs like Royalty, which were much more bigger clubs, where the other places, maybe because they were the pub places and things were affiliated with these pubs and stuff like that, you know, they'd have the banqueting suites and so on and so forth, where, you know, they'd, do, they'd have these gigs and that. But I, yeah, I remember, putting up with a lot of shit going there. And it slightly confused me as a teenager to understand what was going on. I think that gave me even more force to develop Soul to Soul. And it also became part of our mantra where we had the idea of a happy face, a thumping bass for a loving race, because at that time, you know, I, I was growing up with Greek people, Irish people, English people. They were all like as they, you know, they kind of ran things at the time, so we was catching up. And um, as we started to cut our teeth, 
change, flip the script a little bit and change the style. As yeah, like, I was about to say someone, someone like Paul Anderson, who was one of the first black DJs in yeah. the West End, you know, and, and right. saying George Power, who was a Greek guy and that's had right, this yeah. huge black following. You know, you're starting to see the change in music there in London, but it's amazing to hear that yeah, racism was so prevalent on the door policies of these clubs playing black music. It's it's really weird because um, I don't even think I would have taken it as racism because there was so much shit going on at that time that there was lots of things that you just took for granted. I remember on a Saturday going to play football for the school and stuff and you played like clubs outside of London or whatever and the kids would run up and touch your hair and stuff like that. I remember meeting girls thinking you had a tail and stuff like that. Now, that sounds right powerful and pretty like odd now because we're living in this PC world. But back in those days, there were a lot of stuff that you just took for granted that didn't, you know, if it didn't kill you, it'd make you harder. Yeah. A lot of that did with a lot of us. There was a lot of resilience on that level. So whether you were a black guy stuck in the sticks and probably didn't have the community around you, you, you know, as they say, when in Rome. And that's something that I began to appreciate as I travelled more, which a lot of guys who were in London were sort of like, had blinkers on and wouldn't be able to appreciate that. But having travelled quite far outside of London, I remember going to places like Leeds, Leicester, Birmingham, particularly Birmingham and places like that, which had their own communities as well, pretty solid ones. But yeah, there was a different level of tolerance now, all of those things, I believe, later on became prevalent in our approach to being upwardly mobile, as it were. And we learnt things from that. I'm not saying they were great, but that's how it was. And we made the best out of what was going on during those days. So moving on a little bit, when you first decided, decided to start Soul to Soul and your, your, your previous sound system, we just immediate that you, you was going to play all different kinds of music, you know, straight away. Yeah. How did that go down with uh, the local audience around you, you know, your friends and things like that? Well, first of all, it was difficult because you tried to play like a club set in a, with a sound system. It, it was wrong. The whole idea of the sound system, the people followed you for what you did. So you emulating somebody else wasn't the ticket. Now that was quite cool because in terms of flipping the script, you played the souls, as the seniors would call it in those days, the souls. You played the soul music that people could, um, yeah, relate to, I guess. So, you know, it, we would call it two-step soul. So um, it was a bit more down-tempo. And it fitted in with that sort of lover's rock kind of swing. And the two things were inherent. And then as we evolved, you're talking about the early 80s now, music changed. Electronic music came in. And that was the wide berth to soul to soul and all the other things that the world had to offer because we were moving out of even people mimicking the American style to us being able to listen and maybe make this music called Electro. And when Electro came out, everybody's sound system sounded great <laughs> because it was electronic music thumping away. You could can manipulate the frequencies and stuff like that. And um, I would have thought you know, from the days of sort of Pac-Man and all those early tunes there, which would have been early 80s, and us wandering off to places like Spats on a Saturday afternoon and stuff like that, and being all hip-hop. Well, it wasn't called hip-hop in those days, it was called Electro. And then I met a guy in London called Nutriment, who was an American guy who came over to, to England. I'm not really quite sure whatever happened to Nutriment, but he was my first um, introduction into that world. And I guess because we were living on the peripherals of all of that stuff that was happening in the Americas, we created our own. And in creating our own was maybe the start of how people have come to know soul to soul today because i then was able to take 
my knowledge of what I learned in the studios. It was in the early days of electronic music being made and MIDI coming out for the first time, the idea of digital sound and so on and so forth. So I was able to cram all of that in. It was just a great time to be around. And what we learned and what we portrayed was quite interesting because it all was hapdash, you know, it was all still DIY, but it was our verge. And because it was so new, no one, there was no president ever set. So you set your own president. So yeah, you could go out and listen to Masterminds, which were quite interesting, but they were trying to be American to me. No one was taking responsibility or being their own sort of people. So we had a combination of the Caribbean and the Americas in Britain. And Britain was always a shopping window for the rest of the world. I don't know, maybe the Beatles <laughs> or the Rolling Stones, whatever. But in those days, you know, um, I remember, you know, hooking up with people like Jalal, um, who was over, he lived here, he was part of the Last Poets, so many other different people. And oddly enough, everybody, everything started to make sense in terms of the journey, like we were looking for this perfect beat, which is the concept of digging crates, but it all sort of started to make sense. And then instead of us trying to do things in an American way, because I was actually personally sick of that in the soul scene when people were dressing up in white suits and pressing their hair and looking like dickheads, basically, at the request of most A&R people, which, God bless them, ignorance is only blindness to the facts. They don't really understand. You know, they were just trying to mimic the Americans. Now we were going for our own. And as well, Europe had something a little bit different than everybody else, especially the Americans. We kind of had style, a classy style. What the Americans had was a far more grungy style of... You know, I mean, we weren't that much into sportswear. We, we, I mean, those days we were wearing this a mate called Butter, Slazinger, Fred Perry. And those were the the big ones for us, Adidas and stuff like that. And coming back to sports and football, you have to understand the working class mentality in all of us, from the terraces to the clubs, there there was links, it was separable links. Yeah, it's worth saying about the 1980s kind of clothes culture as well as yeah. the musical culture which you're talking about, which is very British. The clothes culture of Britain in the 80s, especially in London, was absolutely insane, really. Just, it was crazy. Yeah. If you didn't have a particular haircut, if you didn't have a particular type of shirt, Tonic, I mean, we, they used to wear mohair trousers and stuff like that. Stay press, you know, kind of Batman. Um, but all of those things were part of the culture of growing up. Now, if you weren't in that set, you weren't anything. <laughs> you know, you was absolutely nothing. So we managed to mash all of that lot up, even into when we were doing bigger parties. We'd moved out of the community centres and the street parties to the point where we were sort of maybe trying to challenge the system, the club culture system, and doing these clubs ourselves. And we were quite young and stuff, so obviously not taken very seriously. But what was interesting during that period is that what it led back to, which was, it led back to the fact that we were in control. We did our own thing. It was about us, not about them. And it did lead to a lot of the things that Soul to Soul are affiliated with now. So in the early days, um, when you're running the Soul to Soul parties, is there a moment when you start to think, hey, this is getting pretty big now, before you started to make records? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, <laughs> ego-wise, we always thought we were larger than what we were anyway. So, um, yeah, there was no more room in the hat, as it were, for that. But um, what did start taking light was the fact that we were maybe hooking up with more interesting people who had more contacts. So the venues were getting cleaner, nicer. The crowd, the f people that followed us was far more consistent than, than ever before. Don't get me wrong. I mean, back in the day, just like everybody, you suffered for your art, you know? really suffered for your art but um, we persevered and the difference really was the fact that when that crescendo came it was like we were on 
we're in a very interesting period of time. It, it was almost like magic. Everything fell really into place. It, from being out of focus, everything became into focus. The age, the attitude, the times, the venues that we were getting, and even the idea of the business. Now, just to, for clarity, in terms of our business opportunities, we started up as a business of Soul to Soul by an organisation called the Manpower Services Commission, where during the days of Margaret Thatcher coming in and the whole social climate changing, the idea was that the government would um, back any ideas what you had going in, you know, this entrepreneurial spirit. And they'd double your finances, basically. So like, you put up a £1,000, the government would give you a £1,000. And then you started your business like that. And we started, like I said earlier on, you know, from having market stalls and stuff like that. We first started to sell, you know, where we'd redesign stuff. So whether it was jeans and you'd add a little bit of this here and there, with the music that we were playing at the time, so we're duplicating the music. All right, I'll tell you the truth, we were bootlegging our asses off back in <laughs> them days, killing it, selling all the music everybody wanted. Yeah. And then part and parcel of the stores, we had clothes as well. And the fashion that we were wearing, we were selling. And what happened, we did a massive party, which is now St Pancras International Station under the arches. Just during that period, it, that was probably the, the catalyst of everything. What year we're talking here? You're talking early 80s, maybe 84, 85, around that sort of time. Early days of cutting your teeth. We were doing big parties anyway, but that was in the height of the warehouse scene. And it was about the music then. It wasn't about just numbers and stuff like that. But what was so prolific about that part is that felt like the whole world came to that particular event. And as flamboyant as we were, we had everything in there from ice cream vans inside the venues to all kinds of crazy things going on. And that was all part and parcel of the experience of coming to one of our parties. And really it took off from there. What actually happened at that particular night, we had our own T-shirts on because we used to promote in our T-shirts, which had our logo on the front, which we didn't know it as a logo. We didn't know this thing called branding. We thought you just bought Coca-Cola and that was it. So anyway, we started off like that and everybody loved the T-shirts and, and the logo so much that um, they all wanted them. So pre-Africa Centre days, doing all the warehouses and still having the market stores and stuff, we were producing our T-shirts and it went from a couple of dodgy old T-shirts that we had to us buying T-shirts, to us buying in bulk from Hanes. And my shops just took off. Anything we could clean up and sell, we'd sell in the shop, literally, you know, a nail. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you want to buy that. And this, and this is all before you made music as Soul to Soul and had music out. This is Well, this was before we had music out. We were yeah. always making music, experimenting with the sound system because you played, you made your own sort of dub plates and stuff like that up anyway, or your own sequences. And then you did your thing on the night. So it was almost like us performing on the night. But um, before I went into mastering our own records, I was bootlegging records before. So having the experience of working in the studios, you know, pressing records either at Leytone over in Archway or sending records back from Jamaica and stuff like that. Because, because I guess the link with the Americas and Jamaica dynamics and Federal and those guys, a lot of those, those soul records, they had them. And then they'd reissue them according to how much we sent, you know. <laughs> and that's what was happening in those days. So Don Blackman's and all things like that, we were repressing those like like no one's business. And because we had the premises of the shops, it sort of made it look a little bit more legit. And then we had people from all over the world. I remember we were getting so much music from Germany in those days, but Germans were coming to us to buy the music. It was kind of mad. So we held that down for a bit. And then the Japanese just invaded one year. And our takings literally quadrupled from the Japanese guys coming in and buying all the stuff. 
And then we um, did a cultural exchange to Japan in the early 80s. I think that might have been 85. And that was it. The world was our oyster. I started to DJ. I DJed there in Japan. Then I went to America. I DJed at a, used to DJ at a club called Mars in America, which was a pretty amazing spot as well. That was really good. And then we started to travel all over the world. People were just booking us to go and play and stuff like that. And then we were making, we were cutting our teeth in terms of um, playing around with with, with um, our drum machines, like SP12 and stuff like that. I was always in Bristol because I did a residency on the Thecla. And it was an evening that Nutriment had organised in Caxton House in Archway and the second meeting of us and the Wild Bunch. Nutriment had hired our system. Wild Bunch came to London, saw our sound system and just said, we got to have that. That is what we need. Because before they were hiring PA systems and sort of playing. And when they saw that, in the midst of um, a disagreement, there were always fights at the dances. In the midst of a disagreement, myself and... I want to believe it was Milo was having a conversation and Nelly came up and we were we were stooped down behind something, ducking the bottles and stuff like that being thrown around. And um, the next thing I remember is us just making music. You know, we were hanging out all the time because people would come to the market store or wherever the stores were. We were all hanging out. And it went from us uh, mixing I Had a Dream with the beats of Fair Play, which I play every week, every gig, to mashup that was done called London Beats, which was done by Martin Mad Hatter. We pressed that. As far as I can remember, it just went mad from there. We'd play out, we'd have to hold the microphone literally under the the turntables because we had that many people coming up trying to get on the mic and stuff like that. It was crazy. And um, us doing these mixes, it, it was just crazy. It was just, it, it almost felt like it all happened at once. Then the Japanese people were going nuts about this particular track that we were playing because you know in those days you played one song three or four times it didn't matter if it was a good song people just wanted to hear it um well they it, couldn't hear it from anywhere else back in those days so you know sorry i forgot that yeah 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 you know if you've got don blackman heart's desire <laughs> and no one else has it. it it was like that so we kept played our sort of mashups along the line and yeah people would follow us for those and then we did the song fair play Rose was actually a dancer at so the time. So that's Rose Windross, one Rose of the singers Windross, in, yeah. in the group. She, she was actually a dancer coming to all the gigs and stuff like that. And then she picked up the mic because we knew that she was a singer. And then, um, then that happened. That became a bit of a club anthem, loosely based around the warehouse scene and what was going on in London at the time. And if you like, that became like the flagship of everything else that we did and how we entertained. And as they say in those immortal words, the rest is history. Club Classics Volume 1, we had that bigger balls that we called the album that because we, it was just, the. It, that's how we were living. That's how we were. We, it is a ballsy title for a debut album. Hello. <laughs> to be honest with you, that's how we were. That is how much front we had. And there was no one, there was no one in front of us and literally, at that time, there was no one behind because no one understood what, you know, you're DJ, you're a group, you, you, you're a business, you know, what is this? We were living, that is how we live. We were like mutoid waste. We just lived what we did, lived the air that we breathe. It was all about our music and literally our philosophy in terms of the way we were suppressed to the idea of us being what the society was dictating. You know, apprenticeships had finished, 
uh, you'd come out the three day week. It was pretty, it was pretty bleak out there. So what we were doing was almost like a breath of fresh air. And we were young. We were, we were kids. You know, I remember going to venues and asking them to hire a venue, and they'd be looking around saying, "Where's your dad?" or somebody like that. Do you know what I mean? And things like that. We were taking so much shit. I mean, one time we put three houses together. That's how many people we had. Stroud Green Road, Finsbury Park. We had like two or three houses almost joined together and we'd have a party every week, every Saturday. No trouble from the old Bill, no trouble from the neighbours or anything. If any trouble, it was us. What, like, how could you get away with that back in the days? Just people were just a bit more relaxed? People were naive. Yeah. It was about naivety. And plus, you have to remember the the you know it went with the areas. We wasn't playing in Kensington and Knightsbridge, you know. We wasn't playing even in Islington. We were playing in the back streets of these places where half of the houses were probably empty, and the majority of people, even in Labrick Grove in those days, that I knew of, were all squatters. And in the eighties, there was a big thing about squatting. So if you lived near a squat, you wanted to get out. <laughs> and if you knew what squatting was about, it was like, eh, that's your road to euphobia. You know, it was all going off. If you could get a house with a squatter in it, shit, it was all done. So then we took that law into account. And I guess we were just a little bit cleverer than the average person's. No, we weren't. We were dumb wits. But what we had was a lot of people on the peripherals who were at uni, who were studying law, studying this, that and the other. And we all just came together on the common ground of loving music. Fantastic. So it seems like Soul to Soul, as much as anything, it was a unique sort of product of the era. You know, you're talking about the, the social situation in London, you know, the fact that you brought all these things together. When did you start to realise hey, we're going to have to really start making more than fair play. We're going to have to go back and, you know, do another single and stuff like that. Well, what really happened, there was bidding war ensued in regards to signing us. And in those days, it was um, it was always a producer's market. But um, obviously, they were looking for bands. But we were signed to a subsidiary label between... The fight was between Virgin and Ireland. And I think... The thing with Julian Palmer was because of the Wild Bunch had already done a deal with Julian. Yeah, it's probably worth saying as well, the Wild Bunch um, group from Bristol, but members of those ones go and create Massive Attack as That's well. Right, and yeah. Nelly Hooper, who, who was from the Wild Bunch, became a key member of Soul to Soul. That's right. Yeah, it's... Um, yeah, obviously a massive, massive musical talent there. <laughs> and there, 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 there's loads of others, you know, there, there were loads of other guys as well that were all part of whether it was, you know, Smith and Mighty or it was Young Disciples. I mean, they're, they're always offshoots, as it were, for, from the main things. But when we realised that it was really kicking off as when the two guys were in a bidding war, it wasn't necessarily deemed to be a bidding war, but it was between Fourth and Broadway and Ten Records. And I went with virgin because of the frontline collection what they had which was 99 pence and i thought that suited everybody although i was a big fan of island records because of bob marley and all those things but the two would meet anyway later on in life what happened with the release schedule was that we'd done a record deal for two singles and an album after the first single which we didn't put out Fair Play as our first commercial single because we saw that as being more of a street thing. So our first actual single was Feel Free. And in those days, um, you could have double A-side or you could have A-side protections. So on the first run, we put Fair Play on there. And then on the second run, we put a version of Feel Free on the single that was sold in Smith and Menzies and Woolworths at the time and stuff. I think that probably, it might have just scarred the top 40, but it broke all the other charts. And then from there, Fair Play was an anthem anyway. So instead of doing the obvious, we did the unobvious and released a whole new record. Always keeping fair play as like a bubbling sort of thing, you know, so it's fall back on, as it were. And uh, we released a song called Keep On Moving. And um, after we released that song, we had to make the album and follow that up. And it went crazy. 
Yeah, and of course, Keep On Moving's huge hit, but did that come out of something similar um, like Fair Play did out of the club? Can you just yeah. talk us through how that came about? Well, f to be fair with you, it was a derivative of Fair Play, <laughs> Keep On Moving, but um, our ideas of the production had just sharpened up and much more of a cleaner sound. And dynamically, it was like the future. And without really knowing it, because most of the, the sound was tuned to our system, our sound system, not to the radio or whatever. To be fair with you, meeting Karen and the efforts that she put in, just the dynamics of all four of us together, including engineers, the time we were living in as well. But um, Karen Wheeler coming along with those vocals just pushed it over the edge. So you had Nasty and Nice together and usually Happy and Sad doesn't, you know, it's either one or the other. But we were able to marry the two things and I guess within the production of the crispness of that sound, which was again loosely based on how we wanted the sound system to sound and Karen coming in with those vocals, which Karen was a prolific singer prior to, to, to Soul to Soul. I mean, even as a, a kid coming up in school, I was listening to her 15, 16, 17. That was the, like one of the first groups she was involved in. But as I met Karen, she was a librarian and she had a, um, she had a singing group that would go and do basically, how would you describe them? I guess they were like a um, a vocal trio that just did like a lot of studio work. You know, they were a studio thing. And then she came out just to do this and she stacked harmonies and she could, you know, she could work out all of those things. And it's almost like a marriage in made, you know? <laughs> yeah, so putting all the, it was a piece of every little component, as small as it was or as big as it was, all of those things together helped to create the sound of soul to soul. And then the rest of it went hands in hand when you start talking about its evolution and how we came about and, and what it was all about and what we really represented, which was technically the UK. Absolutely. And you brought that whole UK sound around the world, you know, with, um, you know, Back to Life, especially being a big hit in, in yeah. the States. Uh -huh. Were you surprised when that came about, you know, being such a British act, you know, were, were you thinking the States were going to get it? We were lucky because, like I said, I was, I used to play in the States, it's the DJ in the States. And at that time we came out, Swing Beat was killing it, you know, Teddy Riley and those guys and this sort of electronic stuff. But um, everybody in America was getting a bit tired of it because it, for them, didn't have any depth, didn't really have any length. So America was waiting for something and we popped off in the right territory, New York. A gentleman called Bobby Condors took, I think I was on, I was on Frankie Crocker's show in the uh, his drive time show on a Friday afternoon, just before DJ Red Alert did his show on KISS. So yeah, WBLS and KISS Radio, those guys ran New York. Hot, sticky summers, 87s, 88s. Uh, that's the, the era. And I became a bit of a friend with Frankie Crocker. He was intrigued by the fact that I was English, black, West Indian. And uh, I can't remember who introduced us, but um, from him hearing the record, he knew that there was, for him, it was something unique about this, this record, this piece. He just started to play it over and over. And, and when you listen to Frankie, you'd hear this tune. So Bobby Condors was an intern at the time. I'd gone over to do to start embark on the, the, the interviews and, and the promotion for Soul to Soul, which I guess initially would have been fair play, but because this record at the time, Keep On Moving, caused such a stir, that's what Frankie Crocker got hold of. You know, they, fair play was nice, it, it kind of worked, but this was what they call a game changer. And I remember being waiting in the lobby 
them taking the tune because I had had white labels and I'd handed them out to various DJs. Bobby Condos came back in the room. He was an intern at the time. He took the record, recorded it on one of the eight-track cartridges. So without me knowing, he had recorded it again and given a copy to Red Alert. As soon as I came out of the interview, the first interview with Frankie Crocker, I was waiting in the lobby. He took me over to meet DJ Red Alert, who was my idol at the time, you know? And I met, I met everybody there. <laughs> I met the Jungle Brothers. I met, uh, I think I met, that might be the first time I met Chrissy as well, Karis One. And everybody was hanging out there. Tribe was there, like, you know, just in the area. I was like, it was just really, that was the scene you wanted to be in, you know? And in the same night, they had played the record back to back. So Frankie Crocker played the vocal version and Red Alert was cutting the hell out of the other versions that I'd given him the vinyls. Yeah, the rest is honestly history. The thing literally blew up. I mean, that night, everybody just wanted to hear that. What was that beat? And because it was affiliated with hip hop, which originally two hours earlier had come from the R&B station, which was the biggest black station in America at the time. KISS was the big young station at the time. So I had the, the old and the new in one day, come that Saturday, everybody wanted a tune. And that was it. And I was physically there in New York at the time. Must have been an amazing thing. But I suppose it only could have happened for someone like yourself who was an outsider and could get both those different kind of things on side, really. It was a weird setup because I can't even explain how it happened. It was one of those happy accidents. I mean, you know, the music technically speaks for itself. But I think what was really interesting is them having this English guy. He's black. Because they thought I was a punk rocker before. I mean, no one would talk to me. I was hands off, you know. It's this weird guy in reception. I don't know what he's doing there and that. But um, all the things work for us. All the negatives that people, you know, you would have been sick of and everything. In one fell group worked. It all just worked out. And I was this odd, really weird guy that they couldn't make out in black America. That was, you know, part and parcel of this interest in music. And obviously that whole album was a huge success, massive success, and launched, you know, your worldwide career. It was one of, you know, I think seven albums that you made of Soul to yeah. Soul. Yeah. Uh -huh. I suppose you didn't really reach the commercial heights of that, but do you have any other real kind of fond memories of the um, subsequent work that you made? I mean, yeah. I mean, from there, just producing for other artists was like, the best thing that could have ever happened in the whole widest world, you know. But no, there were other interesting things that went on. I think one of the more interesting things is when I got recognised by the NAACP, which is the National Advancement for Coloured People, that, that was like moving from, you know, I don't know, a comic to a broadsheet um, newspaper that you had to hold in two hands. I was honoured by them and post them I went to all the universities I went to the Midwest and they liked me <laughs> I ended up doing Casey Kasem's radio shows maybe he owned about 150 radio stations at the time I did the college circuit based on the NAACP which the music came after and the whole idea of that was the fact that it, there was a social unrest during that period. You're talking 1989, 1990. And as if anybody can recollect, back in 1990, it was the Rodney King scenario. And I was in the heart of it. I had this English accent and I was black. They could work out, oh, what the fuck, Uzi. Anyway, I was put up on a, literally on a pedestal talking about this Rodney King scenario and talking about my experiences in the UK against the Americas. Plus, the other thing I had to my bow was my auntie, who had been in America as a child, was part of um, a movement in LA, in the Crenshaw district. And I had gone and spent summer holidays in the Crenshaw district with you know other members of 
extended families and um what was the movement well it was part of the black panther movement yeah. but it was more on the educational side and people educating black people who had come from like a, a you know a, a pretty poor upbringing and it was a little bit like the salvation army type thing except for the recruitment was Auntie Lily's, it was her thing. And she would teach young people about their history and so on and so forth. And her having me as uh, me and my sister, actually, me and my younger sister, who were both English, <laughs> uh, meeting all these people in the community and stuff like that, it was just, yeah, I was able to draw on things like that. So when I was having the conversation, I was mentioning streets and particular names, it just freaked out the elders completely. Like, how would this kid or how would this person know this who looks like a punk, who, who's English? It just totally took them by storm. Anyway, I met this really interesting guy called Nelson George, a, a writer, and he fixed me up. I got a few books from him, some information from Nelson, and he was also very interested in my story as well. So... I just started to meet all these people in the game, as it were. And I remember being at one particular thing in the late 90s. I already had met Chuck from shows that we had done before. Now I was in the Midwest, places like Texas and stuff like that, where they real cornflake country, real America, the middle of America, and going to these unis and stuff like that and doing these talks and then after the talks when you come to a show and stuff like that, it was crazy. Yeah, and then I got to meet everyone. Uh, and funnily enough, a lot of people wanted to meet me, so that was quite cool. Then come the late 90s, and then America just embraced Soul to Soul. And won Grammys, Soul Train Awards, TV accolades. Barry White had to drag me out of America. Yeah, at my mum's request to come back home. 92 around that time. Was that a physical dragging? Or? Literally, yeah. They made up this blag that I had to come back to England and Barry was there. I basically had tea with Barry and I was really interested in Love Unlimited Orchestra anyway. So, you know, and then he just had this major conversation with him about going home and, you know, that's your home and stuff like that. And, you know, maybe you'll need more at home than you are here. Which me not realising here, they had the conversation with my mum my business manager and Don Taylor, who, who was my manager, American manager at the time, all in suit of me maybe getting out of hand in America and maybe it was time for me to come back. Plus I had the shops here, I had the clubs, I had a lot of things like going on here that were kind of faltering at the time. And I guess some of the crew had recognised that. Anyway, I ended up coming home putting that straight, um, consolidating a few things. And we ended up having a bit more success here. And then I found out that we were a brand. That was really weird. Yeah, and the rest of it was about maintaining it. And then here we are, close to 30 years later, and I'm talking to you in Hackney, across the road from where my old stalls used to be. Yeah, it's it's been quite a journey. And you stopped making music with Soul to Soul in 97. But I suppose after 2008, which we should say 2008 was a big year for you in yeah. terms of, well, awards, really. Yeah, I mean, in 2008, it just seemed like there was a bit of a backlash towards everything that Soul to Soul was a part of. And I became, you know, obviously the... Um, as the front runner of it all. Yeah, then got these weird brown envelopes that we kept slipping and hiding. So they kept saying Her Majesty and stuff like that. And I got honoured by the Queen, yeah, by uh, my peers, as it were. And then from there, I think everybody else in England either felt guilty or were more aware of what the influence of Soul to Soul had. Yeah, it's a bizarre one that it took took something like the Queen to remind people of, you know, what such an amazing legacy. Yeah. But um, you also got the Ivor Novello Award as a, a pioneer as well, which I, yeah. I think is 
obviously amazing. Yeah, that was pretty cool because they had to make up that award. So that was quite nice. That And this is the kind of thing where people say, ah, oh, you know, like, ah, oh, it's bad that this happened. You know, it actually all worked out quite nicely when you really look at the big picture. It's almost like a Leicester City type scenario. Sorry I had to mention that. But yeah, it, it, it really was a sort of, kind of like a rags to riches. But what... In the whole thing, the whole way it all evolved, it was it could have only happened here in Britain. I mean, I'm not taking any of that for granted. I am truly blessed to be in this situation. I'm humbled by the fact that even in that, that many years later, you're able to tell the story. Some of these great people that were around me, my age, have passed away, you know, so... Again, sometimes it gives me goosebumps to talk about it. Sometimes the memories choke me a little bit. And then when I go back and I think about it, I can see everybody in the clear light of day. And our import was just about us making headroom. Even if you want just doing something, you know what I mean? Rather than doing nothing. And the idea of us being innovators and creators on that level was just the fact that that's how we lived. You can't imagine how interesting it was going through the system that we did because none of our parents had gone through it. I mean, you know, I'm second generation born and raised in this country and now I have nationalities all over the place, you know. I, I live in different countries as well. The other thing that's really odd, in America, there's seven states that I have a day Soul to soul day, you know. Soul to soul day. In a America. soul to soul day in America. You can look that up. That's like, amazing. That is weird. It's weirder than what, life. What happens on soul to soul day? Well, every year, I guess, in a particular time of the year, the Americans award other people because America is built on other people's blood, sweat, and tears. Yeah, and that's what makes America so great and so interesting. It's built on other people. You know, every. Out of all the different nations, they come together in places like America and they help to build this incredible country. And we were deemed as part of that evolution, as it were. The fact that the music transcended our accent <laughs> and everything else that we were about. And here we are X amount of years later. This has been the busiest time in the last two years that I've had since 1990. I mean, it's that mad. And that's on all things, whether I'm talking at a school, university, DJing, with the band, TV. I can feel Louis Vega tapping me in my phone right now. That's him buzzing away. It's um, happy days. and I'm really honoured. And even coming here, doing this interview with you guys, telling the story again, and knowing that I've been around people from you know, from Rodigan to James Brown. And and I mentioned them in the same sentence because they mean the same things to me from Rodders, from listening to him and picking up tips and stuff like that and hanging out with him to James Brown, hanging out with him, giving him awards. I made an album for James. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask you about that. You know, that must have been a pretty amazing experience. That was sick. Sick of the Tina Marie, who I was her biggest fan. I was Tina's biggest fan. Yeah. And I hung out with her. Yeah. In her house, everything. And these guys have passed away. It's mad, you know? It's kind of mad. And then you're here flying the flag for it all. It's kind of odd. But I feel truly blessed, you know? Yeah, you, you know, like having worked with such greatness, you know, it must must be amazing. It really is, and especially having conversations now and you're talking to other people and you remember when you were that age and stuff like that, you're thinking, oh, shit, man, you're talking to them, I'm talking to you. <laughs> nah, amazing, happy days. So it seems like things are fuller than ever, but what's next for you and the band? You know, is would you consider writing more music again or is, you know, are you just going to focus on touring? You know what, as I grow now, it's just about fear God and live life now. I try and enjoy all the things that are out there. And when opportunities come, hopefully I make the right decision in terms of dealing with the opportunities. But right now, it's just more about a happy face, a thumping base for a lovely race. We've got to keep on moving to bring it back to life, you know, because, you know, it's only fair play. But, yeah, loving the touring now, 
really settling down with that, being able to appreciate that side of it really a lot. DJing, you know, I DJ in Africa, biggest buzz ever. And I still DJ around the corner, do you know what I mean? So things are really good, you know, great family life, two great kids. Yeah, all is good, God is good. Should be. 